right. Well, welcome to worship, uh, everyone. It's been great already, and we're excited about what God is going to continue to teach us and do in us today. Last week, we kicked off this series from the book of Revelation. And as you heard, there are seven churches that are receiving a message from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to remind you of kind of where they were. Here's the little island that John is on as he has been banished from the mainland, and he is now there uh, probably to work daily and to be a part of the mining industry. These seven churches, as you can see, are just sort of north-northeast of where he was, and they were connected by those magnificent Roman roads. Now, why seven churches? There were at least 10 churches that we know of in this region that had already been started, but why just seven? Is he just ignoring the others or any of the other churches that are outside of Asia Minor? Well, we learned last week that seven is a stylized code word. It probably here means what the church is in its essence. Now, some people believe that these seven churches represent seven different eras of church history. That has been a common belief and still is a common belief today. I personally don't embrace that belief. I believe that these churches, the seven that he's chosen and named, although he could have named others, are simply representative of how the church of Jesus Christ is in any age. They're always going to be Laodiceans and Philadelphians. They're always going to be Smyrnans and Sardisians in any age. And in any given age, the church is going to be in all different kinds of health conditions spiritually. To one church, they'll be witnessing in the power of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit, witnessing to God in his glory and preaching the gospel. But to another church, the Lord might have to say, it's time to wake up. You've fallen, from, you've lost your first love, or perhaps you're lukewarm. So uh, these churches represent all of the churches, and today we're going to focus on the two southernmost churches, Ephesus and Laodicea. Those are the two that are farthest to the south, because the tour bus is moving fast, and we don't have time to linger as long as we would like and maybe take one of these per week. But please know that as we read what the Lord says, as he's moving among these churches, it is a relevant word to us today. The first thing I want to say, if you're taking notes, is this, that it doesn't matter who you are. Now, that tends to fly in the face of everything we've ever been taught by our culture. It teaches us it really does matter who you are and, and uh, how, what your identity is. But the problem is some of these churches were struggling with thinking too highly of themselves. They struggle with pride and arrogance. And when that happens, uh, it tends to make Jesus look really bad as we try to represent him to the culture. Jesus says to them, it doesn't matter who you are. Maybe you heard about the college student who was a freshman just getting started 
And all week long, there were orientation activities, and he was at the freshman reception, eating some food, mingling. And he went over and talked to one older lady who was by herself. And she started asking him questions. This young freshman said, how do you like your school experience so far? He said, oh, I love it. I love all the intramural sports I've signed up for. I love my dorm and the people on my hall. It's just great. There's just one thing I've got to complain about, and that's the president. The lady gasped. She said, well, well what's, what's wrong with the president? He said, well, I'll tell you what's wrong. That old guy, he's an old fuddy-duddy. He is so out of touch. He's not able to lead this school. And she said, young man, do you know who I am? He said, no. She said, I'm the wife of the president. He said, do you know who I am? She said, no. He said, good, and ran off. (laughs) Now, we tend to think our identity, or in that case, our lack of identity is going to save and preserve us. Not so, says Jesus. Now, the Ephesian church is strong. It's been started by Paul during one of his missionary journeys, Priscilla and Aquila helped him with the work there. Later, Timothy, the same Timothy that we have two letters in our New Testament that Paul wrote to this young church leader. He was the pastor in Ephesus then for a period of time. And then John became a presence there, the same writer of this letter, and he became an overseer of all these churches. Ephesus has been a thriving church for at least 40 years when Revelation is being written, at least four decades it's been in existence. And it's got a whole lot going for it. By the way, Paul had a special relationship with this particular church. It's the place where, although he was usually itinerant and traveled around, it's the place where he spent more time than any single city. In fact, we know that he spent probably about three years in the city of Ephesus. And notice how this letter starts. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now, that's the way every one of these letters will begin. Jesus is walking among the churches, checking out their integrity, um, sort of getting a checkup on their relative health and how well they're doing. Now, in your Bible, these words may be in red. Do you know why that is? Not every Bible will be a red letter edition Bible, but typically, if we have red letters, it means that it's Jesus himself speaking, the actual words of Jesus. So when you read the Gospels, much of it is in red because it's showing actual words of Jesus. Here, if you have a red letter edition Bible, it will probably have this in red because we're talking here about a direct message to the churches that Jesus gave through the apostle John. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. What a picture. Jesus is visiting the churches. He's checking on their integrity. He's checking up on their health. Now, let me share with you a little bit about the background of this, about the city of Ephesus itself. Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Some scholars estimate that it might have had a half a million inhabitants, but 
everybody says at least a quarter of a million people. It was truly one of the most impressive cities of its day. Although if you visit it today, the harbor has been silted up and filled with sand from the way it was back then. But back then, it was one of the most important seaports. In fact, the major seaport in all of Asia Minor. There was a huge temple there that was known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. A temple that was magnificent and massive, devoted to the worship of Artemis. And it was also a center for the magical arts. If you ask anyone in the ancient Roman Empire, where can I go to become an expert in the magical arts? They would have pointed you to Ephesus. And emperor worship in Ephesus was alive and well. A 16-foot statue of Caesar Domitian who ruled the Roman Empire from 81 to 96 AD, had been erected in downtown Ephesus, 16 feet high, and the faithful citizens would bow down and worship and pay homage to Caesar Domitian. So you can see the heat is on. And the question is going to be for the Christians in this place, just like it is the question for all of us today, when the heat is on, Are you going to be sold out for Jesus or are you going to sell out to the culture? That's the question with which they were being faced. Also, in downtown Ephesus, just to tell you a little bit more about it, was a magnificent library. Now, from these remaining ruins, you can even get a sense of how fabulous it was. This is the famous library of Celsus, one of the most magnificent ancient libraries ever constructed, filled with ancient literature. And so uh, the men would go here and study. And if it was a day where it was a big market day, the wives would often, because all around this is a massive open market area, and just like at the malls today, the guys would say, hey, I'm going to go do a little reading over at the library, and the wife would say, great, I'll be shopping out here, and they would go and barter with the merchants. But this is true. Archaeologists have discovered that there was a secret passageway in the back of this library that was connected to a brothel. And so while the wives thought their husbands were really into reading and research, what they didn't realize is that some of their immoral husbands were researching the wrong thing. All right? But that is a little bit about this magnificent city of Ephesus. It was a place of commerce and a place of tremendous temptation, a world-class city, if you will. One other interesting note about it, before we dive right into the message that Jesus has to bring, strong legend, as I said last week, some legends are very dubious, doubtful. Some are very strong and are probably true. I think this one is true. Uh, Legend has it, this is not in your Bible, But church history and legend has it that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a part of the church in Ephesus. You remember Jesus had put John in charge of his mother even when he was on the cross. Behold your son, behold your mother. You remember those words? And so strong legend says that Mary was a part of this church. Now, can you imagine how intimidating that would be? Yeah, we're having our parenting conference this year. Who's speaking? Oh, Mary. 
speaking. What's she speaking on? How to raise a perfect son. I wouldn't miss that for the world. It's one very interesting place. It should matter who they are. They've got a lot of human clout. And you'll notice as he begins, he gives them a number of compliments. Verse 2, I know your deeds, your hard work and perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Wow, they've got a lot of cool things going for them. I mean, they won't tolerate bad teaching. They've kicked out the the false teachers. They're persevering through hardship and trials. So many good things going for them. And notice down in verse 6, he gives them another compliment. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who were the Nicolaitans? This was an early Gnostic group. For you church historian types, the first big heresy that the church had to battle was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. And at the heart of it was a philosophy that said the body is evil, but the soul and or spirit is good. Body is evil, spirit or soul is good. So the teaching went, and Nicholas, this false teacher, was promoting this the founder of the Nicolaitan group, said, therefore, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can abuse your body. You can do any immoral act with your body, and it does not affect your soul. Wow. Can you imagine the kinds of loose living that would lead to? And so this was an early heresy in the church. Of course, the truth is our body does matter. The truth is we are holistic as we're finding more and more these days. But Jesus says to them, bravo, you hate that kind of false teaching and you have dealt with it. Jesus is applauding these guys right and left. But notice he turns a corner here in verse four. He said, yet I hold this against you. Got all these things going for you, but I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, if you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to write three R words there. They all begin with R, which kind of sums up his message of what to do. Remember, repent, Those two words are actually in the text. And this third word is not in the text, but it sums it up, return. Do the things you did at first. That's return. Remember, repent, and return. You were a great church a few decades ago. Something has changed. You've allowed God to be edged out. You've become so involved in the work of the Lord, you've forgotten the Lord of the work. Now, can we just pause? Let's just push pause for a moment. Do you know what is amazing to me? And this is still true of our Lord today as he walks in our midst and checks us out. Jesus here is looking beyond all the outward accoutrements of success. 
When Jesus visits the church and takes a look, he looks beyond the buildings and the budgets and the bodies that fill the sanctuary. And with eyes like blazing fire, when Jesus pays a visit, he peers into the very heart of every individual in the church. And he says, I want your total commitment. Does he have your total commitment? Is Jesus number one in your life? He deserves it. He bought you with his own blood. He deserves absolute top priority in every life. Can you imagine if I said to my wife, Debbie, wow, hon, it's amazing. You know something, hon? When it comes to women, babe, wow, you're in the top five. Do you think that would fly? No, that's not going to do for a relationship that is literally built on commitment and exclusivity. If this person is not number one, you have got a big problem. And Jesus shows what a major, major problem this is in the rest of verse 5, where he says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. All kinds of conjectures about what that means. I think he's basically saying, uh, you are no longer a church. You're history. Just as a marriage where there's not a first allegiance to the spouse is in grave danger and is probably in danger of extinction. So a church that loses its exclusive paramount commitment to Jesus as the head of the church and loses their true devotion to him, trust me, that church is in danger of extinction. But I'm so happy for verse 7 because it gives a ray of hope. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And by the way, that phrase is the most frequent phrase in this book. He who has an ear, let him hear. It's a word that shows hope. It's a word that shows possibility for change by God's grace. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember I said last week, the key to understanding this book is the Old Testament. And here in the last book of the Bible, John takes us all the way back to the first book of the Bible. And when you read Genesis chapter 3, that pivotal chapter ends with Adam and Eve banished from the garden and shut off from the tree of life. And in the book of Revelation, what we see is a full circle. As we end this series in chapters 21 and 22, what we see is paradise restored. What we see is the way to the tree of life has been opened again, praise God. And you don't want to miss any of these messages, but let me tell you, that last one on heaven, we just may all get ecstatic, okay? That is going to be an, one amazing study as we talk about heaven. 
So it doesn't matter who you are, the Lord says, it matters who I am. But now let's turn our attention away from Ephesus for a moment, and let's transition and talk just a bit about this other church, Laodicea. And I would declare to you that in here, we learn a message, it doesn't matter what you have acquired. You know, there are many people in our world who put great emphasis on what they possess, what they have. But this last church that Jesus addresses out of the seven is the church of Laodicea. And Laodicea, interestingly, was the wealthiest of all the seven churches. But catch this, he doesn't say one positive word to this church. All the other churches at least get some commendation, some compliment. You just saw Ephesus got a whole bunch of them. But not one positive word to the Laodicean church. It's the only one that gets no commendation. Now, again, a little background about the city. It's well documented outside of the Bible that in AD 60, a massive earthquake, I wish we knew what it was on the Richter scale, but it devastated the city of Laodicea. Over half of the buildings were utterly destroyed. Thousands of people were killed or died in the days following that tragedy. What a major disaster. But get this, it was so major a disaster that the Roman government stepped in. The Caesar said, we have appropriated funds from the imperial treasury to help you rebuild. That was fairly rare. That would be like a tornado ravaging through the capital district. And President Obama calls and says, we have set aside over a billion dollars to help you rebuild your city. But all the local government officials say, Prez, thanks, but you can keep your cash. We got this. We'll handle it on our own. That's who does that. But that's what the people of Laodicea did. That's how self-sufficient they felt. That's how much wealth they had locally. They turned down funding from the imperial treasury to rebuild their city. They said, we got this. We can handle life on our own. Now, I suppose some of you might say, well, there's a certain nobility in that. Wow, they're not looking for a handout. They don't want outside help. They want the dignity of doing it on their own. But the problem is when that self-sufficient attitude creeps into the church, where the, to the point that people eventually say, well, I don't really need worship. I, I don't really need the spirit. I, I, don't, I don't really need God, thank you. I'm getting along quite fine. As you're about to see, that's an attitude that the Lord detests. Also, in Laodicea, it'll be helpful for you to understand, they were technologically advanced, not computers and smartphones, of course, but they had a very intricate aqueduct system. With all they had going for them, the one thing Laodicea did not have was a local source of clean drinking water. And so what they had had to do is pipe in water from miles away in an intricate aqueduct. It was a marvelous feat of human ingenuity. And so they piped in 
cold water that came right out of the ground in cold springs from the city of Colossae, 14 miles away. It was wonderful when it came out of the ground, just almost too cold to drink. And they piped in hot water from subterranean hydrothermic pools beneath the earth. They piped that in, which came out steaming, too hot to drink. It was therapeutic kind of water that people went and bathed in when it had been cooled a bit. And they piped that in, and as it mixed together in the aqueduct system, traveled for miles, and finally arrived in Laodicea, it was that tepid temperature, too warm to drink, but too cool to have any therapeutic value. Now, with all that in mind, I want you to look at what he says in verse 14 and following. They were chapter 3 now of Revelation, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. King James says spew. Uh, Some of your translations may have the word vomit. That's literally what this Greek word means. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. Wow. Not very complimentary, huh? Jesus looks at the church in Laodicea and says, I've got no other way to put it. Your spiritual life is the same as your water. Lukewarm. It makes me nauseous. You have no commitment, no passion. At least try to fire up your relationship with me. Drink deeply from my grace instead of continuing in this lukewarm existence. Your water reflects your spiritual lives. You guys are content to coast. You're just going through the motions of Christianity. Wow, what a message. You say, well, pastor, how do we know if we're lukewarm? Because obviously this this is displeasing to the Lord. How, How do we know if we're lukewarm? Well, with all apologies to Jeff Foxworthy, let me give you some possibilities. You might know you're a lukewarm Christian. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you follow one set of values with your church friends and another with your coworkers. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you come to church more to network for your business than to worship the living God. You just might be a lukewarm Christian. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you're more passionate about the way you dress on the outside than the vital condition of your heart. You might be a lukewarm Christian if you're physically healthy and able, but you allow weather to determine whether or not you get together with God's people on the weekend in worship. You might be a lukewarm Christian if giving generously and sharing your faith or serving others is something you see as optional. 
You might be a lukewarm Christian if you never get goosebumps when you hear about a miraculous answer to prayer. And we all need to ask ourselves, where are we today as Jesus walks among the church when he walks in our midst and checks our spiritual health? Are you sold out for Jesus or are you selling out to the culture? You say, well, what's the big problem with this? I'll tell you the problem with lukewarmness. Here it is. It becomes contagious. And when the bar is set that low, when there's that kind of spiritual apathy, it eventually infects the whole church. And once the church becomes lukewarm and loses its commitment to the head of the church, Jesus Christ, it really becomes a farce even to call it a church. I hope you're hearing me. Call it a cruise ship. Call it a society. Call it an event. Call it a club if you want to. But for God's sake, don't call it a church. Jesus said, it makes me nauseous. I didn't say that. He did. That's how lukewarm spirituality makes Jesus feel. Well, we've seen that Laodicea was a banking center, lots of wealth. But let me add to the picture just a little bit more before we finish the message to this church. It was also a center for fashion in Asia Minor. Let me tell you what I mean. They were well-known all over the Roman Empire for this silky black woolen cloth they made from the black sheep that roamed the hillsides. And this black woolen cloth was used in clothing manufacturing. So it was a center for the manufacture of clothing. Laodicea was also the seat of a flourishing medical school where some of their pioneering doctors had created this powder called Phrygian powder. You ever heard of it? Phrygian powder, which was used in the manufacture of a magnificent eye salve. Now, with that in mind, look at what he says in verse 17 and following. You say, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. That's a reflection of what they said to the Roman government. No thanks. Keep your money. We'll fix it ourselves. Don't need a thing. But you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and miserable. I counseled you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Now think about the irony of this, folks. Let's look at this verse. Let's go back, just one frame here, another frame, and let's look at this. Now remember, here's a church with financiers, With world-class doctors, here's a church with clothing manufacturers. Here's a city, here's a culture where those things are common. But Jesus' verdict in the church is, you're blind, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. All the things that you value, that you think make you really cool, I've... I've got a different perspective on those. 
they had failed to find in Christ the source of all true wealth, splendor, and vision. At the beginning, they were strong, but they had begun to drift, and lukewarmness described their water and their lives. One final statement as we move toward our close today. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've acquired. And third, it doesn't matter what you have accomplished. Jesus, I think you'll agree with me, has some pretty harsh words for Ephesus and Laodicea. When he comes to the church to check it out, he's not going to stand for arrogance. What I find it interesting here is that what Ephesus and Laodicea have in common. They're the first and the last churches of the seven that he addresses And they're the only two churches threatened with extinction, with actual destruction. Why? The reason is they both lack fervent devotion. The Ephesians had lost their first love, and the Laodiceans had become lukewarm. It's as though the Lord is saying, it doesn't matter what's your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished in the past. I want to show you a glorious future that'll make all the past just look like prologue compared to what I'm about to do in your midst. Jesus says, I want a church that's alive in the present. Verse 19, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And then here's that famous verse that we often quote even in evangelism and that kind of thing. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with him and he with me. What an invitation from the Lord. I love that old story about the preacher who was out visiting some of his parishioners and he he was in the neighborhood of an elderly lady from the church and he knew she didn't get a lot of visitors. And so he thought, you know what, I'll just stop by and just say hello and see if I can cheer her up. And so he stopped by, he saw her car in the driveway, he thought she must be home, he could hear the TV on inside it. The door was actually a bit open, but the screen door was closed, and he politely knocked at the door, waited, waited, nothing, he just knew she was there. All the signs were right, that she, he knocked again, and finally a third time, and, and, and he thought, well, I, she's got to be here, but I'll just leave my business card. So he took a business card. And he wrote on it, he thought this would be kind of cute, Revelation 3.20, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. He thought it'd be cute. And she'd get a chuckle out of it. So he, he put it there in the screen door. Never heard from her. Next Sunday at church, he saw her, she walked by and handed him his business card back. But she had marked out Revelation 3.20 and she had written down Genesis 3.10. And he thought, I wonder what that is. He went home and looked it up And Genesis 3.10 reads, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. (laughs) Jesus is inviting us to a sit-down dinner. Who you ate with in that day was huge because sharing a meal represented intimacy. It represented there's a relationship here. And the God of the universe is inviting you today and me to dine with him. I love these last words. To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And then here's that ever recurring phrase again. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as we close today, I want to do it in a bit unusual way. I wonder if Jesus were coming to Grace Fellowship like he came to Ephesus and Laodicea and walked in their midst and checked them out and gave his evaluation. I wonder if he did that for us. I wonder what he would say to us. If Jesus were evaluating Grace Fellowship, I wonder if he'd say some positive things. I sure hope so. I wonder if he'd say, wow, I really love the commitment you guys have to the word of God, to truth, and you preach it. I, I, maybe, maybe I would hope he would say, I love the commitment you guys have to make more and better disciples. You're all about that. You try to make sure everything is somehow contributing to that grand mission. I wonder if Jesus walked in our midst and evaluated all of our programs and all of our procedures and the things we do. I wonder if he'd say, I love the way you guys get out in your community, hundreds of you, and you serve the poor and the underprivileged and the unfortunate. You serve them week after week. I love that, guys. Bravo. I don't know what he'd say. I would sure hope there would be a few compliments I would hope he would say, you've got some super servants in your midst, humble women and men who don't look for applause, but faithfully keep serving me day after day. You've got some awesome families who are keeping me at the very center. I I would hope Jesus would say some things like that, but I wonder what else he would say. Don't you? Don't you wonder what Jesus would say to us? So here's here's how I want us to close today. I want you to imagine, and we're just going to do this for about 60 seconds. I want you to imagine that you, your life, your walk with Christ is a representation of our entire church. Are you with me? Your life is a representation of our entire church. And if Jesus were to speak a message to you about what we need to work on based on your life, What would he say to you? I want you to think about that, pray about that for one minute. And then after 60 seconds, I'm going to close this in prayer, all right? Would you go to prayer right now and ask Jesus, who is just as much here as he was at Ephesus and Laodicea, walking in their midst, I want you to ask the Lord, Lord, what would you say to me? today. Let's pray.
Lord, may we never be a church that is repulsive to you. May we be the kind of church that thrills your heart, Lord, as you continue to shape us and mold us and make us into the people you want us to be. Lord, I don't know the message you spoke to many individual hearts today, but I know the message that you're speaking to mine. And Lord, you're calling me to more fervent devotion, more passion for you, a stronger commitment to care more about serving your cause and mission than having a more comfortable life. Father, as you continue to speak to us, I pray that most of all we would have ears to hear and a willingness to obey. May we be a church that thrills your heart as you walk in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.